Please open in your Bibles to Psalm 5. It's on page 449 of the Bibles provided. There's a podcast that I really like where the the uh, interviewer is just an insatiably curious guy, and he, if he's ever interviewing somebody from a particular place where he's like, say he went to Kenya and interviewed some folks who were from the countryside, and he asked them, could you tell us something that's specific about the place where you're from? What, what makes it different from all the other parts of Kenya? And he, he often asks questions like that. Can you, can you get down to kind of a, two or three factors that explain what makes where you've come from unique? I wonder if you were pressed to ask that question about the place where you grew up. What would you say? You know, what would come to mind is these are the these are the bizarre things that seemed normal to me growing up, just because that's what everybody did. You know, if, if you're like me and you grew up in the suburbs of Houston, then mosquitoes and cockroaches and humidity, that's just the normal part of life, right? We, we just live with the traffic. It kind of, you know, we get annoyed by it, but also it's just kind of like the background noise of our lives. How would you characterize the, the culture and the ways of the world where you grew up in? And, and I know we, we feel this especially when we move to a new place, right, and we get culture shock. Uh, so, you know, I never thought about appreciating urban sprawl much until I moved to Philadelphia. And all these little towns had their own little city centers, but none of them had any parking lots. It's like you were, you were meant to drive there, but there was no place to park in these little villages. And, you, and they, they didn't have feeder roads for the interstate, so you couldn't, like, just get on the feeder road and drive and find an on-ramp. There was always some mysteriously hidden on-ramp that you had to, to know the, the way to. Uh, I never appreciated these kind of simply mun- mundane, banal things about living in a place with lots of land and concrete. There is culture shock and different ways of speaking about every place that you live. As we come to Psalm 5, I think we're being given kind of an orientation to the kingdom of God. So God is going to hear, tell us, here are, the, here are the things about what it's like in my realm. Here are the factors that make living in my realm unique. And the reason I I use that term kingdom of God is because in the middle of David's opening stanza of Psalm 5, he's crying out to God and he calls on God as my king and my God. My king and my God. This is a a common idea in the Bible that God reigns and rules, but it's, it's notable how rarely in the Old Testament God is explicitly called king. It doesn't happen that many times. And I think by doing this for us, David gives us kind of the theological nub of the psalm. This is a psalm about God's kingly rule and what it's like to live under God's reign, what kind of king God is. So let's read the psalm together. As we do, you maybe will notice that it's kind of divided up into five sections. And the sections kind of alternate between addressing God and then describing the wicked. So we'll see that pattern repeat go throughout the psalm. Let's listen to God's word from Psalm 5, verse 1. To the choir master, for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. 
The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all those who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as a shield. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. So as we see, David is continuing to come to the Lord in prayer. He's urgently pleading with God to hear him. But this psalm, as I said, centers on this declaration of God's name, my king and my God. This is the, the picture of God that is front and center for David as he prays these prayers. And we should note from the outset the personal relationship he declares. It's not just you are God and king. He calls out to him as my king and my God. And, and this is the psalm in a nutshell. God is king. He rules and for God's people, those who can say, my God and king, this is good news. To be able to call on God as your God and, and your king is to call on a, a God who is a loving father. A God who is a, a righteous leader, like a good shepherd. A God who is a strong protector. A God who judges your enemies. A God who is the source of your joy. That's what it means to call on God as my God. But if you can't do that, if you can't say God is my God and my king, and you're one of God's enemies, then God the king is terrifying. He's a judge who hates evil. He destroys liars. He abhors the deceitful. He banishes rebels from his presence. Everything hinges on whether God is your God and king or not. David clearly believes that God's kingly reign is good news for him. That's the perspective from which he prays. He knows himself to be one of God's people. But a big question that the psalm asks for its readers that we have to answer is, can I call God my king? Or am I one of the rebels he's going to destroy? Am I taking refuge in God or rejecting him? The question behind the question is, does it matter to you whether you can call God your king? Is that really a big deal or is it thinking, do you think it's no big deal? You maybe would rather just keep on living as, you, as if you are your own king, ruling over yourself. As we look through this psalm together, I hope that you'll keep these questions in mind. Is God your king? And do you care whether he's your king or not? As I mentioned, I think this psalm orients us to what it's like to live in God's kingdom. 
You know, imagine you are flying on an airplane to God's kingdom, and you land at the, the kingdom's airport. But before you can pass through customs, they funnel you into a classroom. And there's, there's an orientation class. They're going to tell you, here's what the kingdom of God is like. Here is who is allowed entry into it. And here's a description of how the citizens live. We're going to use those three points as our, our organization this morning. What kind of kingdom is it? Who can come in? And how do the citizens in this kingdom live? So first, what kind of kingdom is it? We've landed here. What, what kind of kingdom have we come to? The two main characteristics we need to know from the psalm are that this kingdom is a righteous kingdom and that it is a, an abundantly loving kingdom. We'll take a minute to look at each of these. But you should know from the outset that these two characteristics of the kingdom derive from the king. The king is righteous and the king is abundantly loving. And that's why the kingdom is this way. First, where do we see the righteousness of the kingdom? We see it in the second and fourth stanzas by way of describing its opposites. So let me read verses four through six again. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. So the, the king of this kingdom, God, does not delight in wickedness. It's like the psalmist starts off sort of small and then he ramps it up. He, he doesn't like wickedness, but he act, actively hates wickedness. He hates evil. He hates those people who give themselves over to evil. The evil and the boastful and the deceitful and the bloodthirsty, he says, they have no place in God's righteous presence. His eyes will not look upon them. It kind of reminded me of, of Esther, right? Uh, King Ahasuerus, he had some, some weird ideas about how people could approach him, right? And you could only approach him by invitation, and if he didn't like the look of you, he just killed you on the spot. But if he extended the golden scepter, you're in. Well, well God has his own courtly requirements, if you are boastful, murderous, and I think we are meant to read unrepentantly so, there's no place for you in this kingdom. Now, terms like wickedness and evildoers sound foreign to us as modern people. Right? We, I don't think many of us often say, well, there's an evildoer over there. This is wicked. I mean, we, maybe we should speak that way more often, but we don't. Uh, there's a, a dog trainer on YouTube that I like, and he's this eccentric guy from Kentucky, and he talks about how you know some dogs are good. They're good alarm dogs. So if you have an, he always says an evildoer on your property, this dog will bark at it. And it always sounds so corny to hear him call him an evildoer, right? So, so maybe these are just words for, for weirdos from Kentucky to use, you know? Or maybe they're only words that are applicable to the absolute worst criminals. You know, so if, if you've seen any images of the October 7th terrorist attack by Hamas where they were capturing innocent civilians and killing children, that that would be a word, the time where we could apply wickedness, evil. Those are evildoers, but, but that's really the only thing, way we could think of using that word. But we see here in how God describes wickedness and evil that it includes a lot more than just the biggies, the big sins. You notice how many times throughout the psalm, lies 
and deceit are named. These are the examples of wickedness that, that the psalmist most frequently cites here. He says, the Lord is this king who destroys those who speak lies in verse 6. And then he abhors the deceitful man. And then in verse 9, he says, the enemies of God's people are described like those who have no truth in their mouth. According to God, the kind of evildoers that he's really wanting to pinpoint are those given to lying. The righteous. The righteousness of the king in the kingdom, then, we could say, is a, a truthful righteousness. It's a kingdom of truth. So if, if you're wondering, well, do I fit in this kingdom? You might ask, do I love truth? Or am I given to lies? Am I willing to admit the truth when I see it presented to me? Am I willing to, to follow the evidence where it leads me to the truth? Perhaps most importantly, am I willing to admit the truth about myself? Am I truthful to myself about myself? Related to this is another category that he names of a category of evil and wickedness is, is pride. The boastful, it says in verse 5, shall not stand before the king's eyes. The boastful are prevented from coming into God's presence. In verse 10, David calls on the Lord to cast out his enemies because they have rebelled against you. They've rebelled against the king. What we see in these, this attention to boasting and rebellion is an important principle about this kingdom's righteousness. When unrighteous people are confronted with the kingdom's righteousness, it should bring us to repentance and humility. But those who don't repent, those who are confronted with the righteousness of the kingdom, and they remain committed to their wickedness, to their lying, to their evil, those are the ones who will be excluded by the righteous king. Those who are unrepentantly evil, those who unrepentantly rebel, who, who stubbornly and proudly cling to ruling themselves, those are the ones that the righteous king will banish from his presence. So we see this is the righteous kingdom. That's what this kingdom is like. But we also noted that it's an abundantly loving kingdom. And I say that because of verse 7. David says, I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down to your holy temple in the fear of you. So David is very clear about God the king and the king's righteousness, but he's also convinced of the king's abundant love. And that because of the king's abundant love, David knows he can enter into God's presence. That makes us think about, well, what, what may be the context of this psalm? And once again, the theories go that this psalm is really connected all the way back to verse 3. I mean, Psalm 3. So Psalms 3 through 6 are thought to compose a set of psalms that were all prayed by David on his way out of town. So Psalm 3, when, when Absalom attacks Jerusalem, David and his company flee. And the next series of psalms are, are you find this night and day rhythm 
of David praying at night and in the morning and at night and in the morning and pray, calling out to God as he's on the way out of town. So even if, if that's right, then even in the context of David fleeing his own son, and we talked about last week, all of the, all of the, the terrible things associated with Absalom, and it, and it was partially David's fault that Absalom uh, is, became the way he is. Now, not totally, but at least partially. David's, David's complicit somewhat in Absalom's rebellion. So even in this situation, persecuted by his own evil son, David is convinced of the love of the king, that he has access to God because of the steadfast love of the Lord. And we see the love of the, God, of the Lord permeating this psalm. David is, is appealing to God from the very beginning to hear him and confident that he does. He's, he's confident that the Lord at the end is a, a refuge for his people, that the Lord is a protector for his people, that the Lord graciously covers with favor his people, he says in the last verse. All of these are, are true only because of the Lord's love, not because David or anyone else deserves to be in the kingdom. The only, the only standing any sinner can have in the kingdom is because the king is full of love, abounding in love and mercy. So the passage that Betty read for us earlier from 1 Timothy 1, didn't Paul say the same thing? He was the chief of sinners, the foremost of sinners. And he says, and yet Christ showed abundant mercy to me. And he didn't do this just because I was his favorite. He did it so that everybody who came would know that this is the kind of God God is. He is a merciful God. So this kingdom is righteous and this kingdom is abundantly loving. And these two things are not at odds. God can be perfectly righteous and abundantly loving. They're not at odds, but it is hard for us to understand. How can sinners who deserve righteousness receive this abundant love? And that brings us to the question, who can come in? So we know this kingdom is righteous. We know this is abundantly loving. Well, how do we know which we will receive when we come? Will we receive righteous judgment or will we receive abundant love? That's the question we should be asking. Who gets access to this kingdom? And we should understand that in the world of the psalm, access is everything. Perhaps you notice when David was reflecting on evil in verses 4 through 6, he, he keeps coming back to the idea that evil may not dwell with God. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. So you see the prized position that dwelling with God has, that one of the worst things we can say about evil is that you, you don't get to dwell with God when you're, when, you're uh, when you're rebelliously evil. Similarly, the boastful shall not stand before you. The, the presence of God is everything. Those who, who are in sin and refuse to repent of their sin will be judged by God. So David declares this is true in verses 4 through 6, and then he prays for this to be true in, the, in verses 9 and 10. And I, I think we're meant to see David praying in accordance with God's will, that you should judge those who are unrepentant. This is worth underlining here. There's, there's no gray area when it comes to access to God. So there was a, a TV show that aired a few years ago called The Good Place, and it was a... a comedy about heaven and hell. 
it's better than it sounds, still not very trustworthy. <laughs> but uh, you know, one of the, the, the conceits of the show is there's this woman who's been kind of accidentally admitted to the good place. And she says, well, I don't want to go to the bad place. Is there a medium place that I could go to and just kind of hang out and not have, not, you know, I, know I'm not, I don't deserve to be in the good place, but maybe I could just find a medium place. Well, there's no medium place. To be, to be outside of God's loving and life-giving presence is to be under his wrath. Jesus himself says that those who don't believe in him are condemned already. So there's only two choices. Either you have access to God and you have eternal life and joy and fellowship with him, or you're cut off and facing judgment. So if right now your posture towards God is to kind of hold him at an arm's length, you know who he is somewhat, you know the Christian thing you think, but you just, you don't really want to come in. You don't want to come into this kingdom and submit to God's righteousness. Well, there's a warning here for you then. If that's where you'd like to stay, kind of holding God at arm's length, not, not receiving the salvation he offers, not submitting to his lordship, then the warning is that if, if nothing changes, you will face God in judgment one day and you'll be cast out. You'll be cast away forever. Instead of enjoying the, the blessed presence of God forever, you'll enjoy the wrathful presence of God forever. And you won't enjoy it. It'll be torture. The way to be cut off then is to refuse to repent of your sins. It's to remain proudly and stubbornly committed to living life your way. The boastful and rebellious, the psalm is clear, have no access to God. And access is everything. So who can come in? How do we come in? If God is righteous and our pride has offended him, what chance do any of us have? How can David call on God as my king? To start to answer this question, we can go back to verse 3. David says that he's come to God offering sacrifices. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. So in the, in the system of sacrifices in the Old Testament that we see prescribed in Leviticus, there would have been a, a morning and evening burnt offering made for God's people. And this was an offering that was meant for the atonement of their sins. So whether David has that in mind or maybe a more specific sacrifice, that means that his understanding of what it takes to come to God requires having his sin atoned for, having it paid for in some way, being, being purified of the sin that would keep him away so that he can fellowship with God. We might say then that David's mention of sacrifice is a sign of his repentant heart. In other words, David is not one who's boasting about his rebellion. He's not one who's trying to rule his own life. He's, in a sense, confessing his sin and trusting in the gracious provision that God has made through the sacrificial system. We get another description of those who come in verse 11. David says, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. So sinners must take refuge in their righteous king. But again, the key is verse 7 that we alluded to earlier. I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. 
So here is the point of entry. It's through the steadfast love of God himself. And again, in David's day, the the manifestation of that steadfast love was was most clearly through the sacrifices that first were offered in the temple, in the tabernacle, and then the temple. That was how God showed his love to sinners, saying, here's a way to approach me and have fellowship with me. But in the New Testament, we see that those old sacrifices were just shadows pointing to Jesus Christ. We see that the, the gospel preaches to us that sinners can enjoy the steadfast love of God and have access to God's presence through Jesus Christ. Specifically, we, we come to God by trusting that he was crucified in our place. We come to God trusting that Jesus was treated like one of these rebels mentioned in the psalm. He was cast out, taken outside the city and crucified in a, in a way that was cursed by the old covenant law. He was treated as one who bore the full weight of God's judgment, cast away from God's presence. He was treated like that for our sake. He was crucified, buried, and then raised, all to show the steadfast love of God to sinners. And so it's by faith in Christ that the liars and the boastful and the sexually immoral and the anxious and the ambitious can all find forgiveness of our sins. The unrighteousness that should have kept us out of God's presence is washed away, removed as far as the east is from the west, if we trust in Christ. And if we trust in him, then we can come into his presence, into God's presence. Have you trusted in Jesus for forgiveness of sins? And when we come to God through Christ, it's not like the old covenant system where we can just come to the outskirts of the tabernacle. When we come to God through Christ, we can come all the way in to the very throne room of God. We can come boldly before the throne of grace. We can walk right in to God's throne room and know we're accepted. Right? We're not like Esther, waiting for the golden scepter to be extended. We come clothed in Christ's righteousness. And so we can enter into God's house and worship him. We can know the protection and favor of God that David speaks of in verse 11, that God blesses the righteous. He covers him with his favor as with a shield. That's what we enjoy by faith in Christ. Access is everything, and through Christ, sinners can have access. Now, to to receive this blessing of Christ, we we have to repent. We We have to say to the king, I've rebelled against you. I have lived in pride. I have given myself over to lying. I've I've been evil in my heart. Notice how David says that there's no truth in the mouth of his enemies. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat's an open grave. To repent is to confess all that to the Lord. From the inside out, I've been corrupt. But I'm trusting in Jesus, your son, to be my sacrifice, to cover me. So we don't come offering our own sacrifice to God. We don't have to slaughter a lamb or or give up something big. 
We come through the sacrifice that Jesus made for us as our high priest who offered himself in our place. So who can come into this kingdom? What kind of citizenship papers do you need? The only people who can come into the kingdom are those who repent of their pride and rebellion against the king and who take refuge in his steadfast love that's revealed in Jesus Christ. That's how you enter this kingdom. And so having answered those first two questions, what kind of kingdom is this? How do we enter it? We should turn to ask, how do the citizens in this kingdom live? What What are the customs and the ways of the people in this kingdom? The psalm describes life in this kingdom like this, that the citizens live righteously and pray persistently. We can learn both of these from David's own example. First, David says in verse 3 that he prepared a sacrifice in the morning and he watched. You might imagine David coming to the threshold of the tent of meeting and there waiting expectantly for God to instruct him. He watched. There's a humility implied in watching. It's both the humility of a sinner (coughs) who knows he needs grace, but also the humility of a learner who knows he needs wisdom. To be a subject of this king is to know that you need both, grace and wisdom, and it's to, to listen to God as he instructs you. But we see this idea expanded on in David's prayer in verse 8. So after verse 7, he says, I have access into your throne room. In verse 8, he prays, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Those who call God my king have a high regard for God's righteousness. David wants to be led in God's righteous ways. Sometimes we can treat God's righteousness and God's grace as if they are opposed, as if they are equal and opposite powers. But that's completely wrong. To say that you need God's grace is to say that you think God's righteousness is good and you've sinned against it. You need forgiveness. To say that you need his wisdom, again, is to acknowledge the goodness of his ways and say, I want to follow your ways as you graciously enable me to do so. And so to live in God's kingdom is to be led in God's righteousness. It's to love God's righteous ways. We rely on God to help us obey him, trusting that he's working all things for our good. The imagery here that David uses when he prays for God to lead him in his righteousness should remind us of how God led his people from slavery in Egypt and how God promises to lead them once again. So if you were paying attention to Geo's reading in Isaiah 43 and 44, you notice how God promises to, to put these streams in the desert right, and to make a pathway for our God, so they, they can, or for his people, so they can come out of bondage and they can have a new exodus. And he's going to make their way straight before them. Well, David is praying for the same thing. He's praying that God would lead him and make his way straight. And so this is not a prayer just that, let me me be fastidious in my righteousness. It it is that, but it's 
Let me do that as you lead me, as you provide for me, as you make my way straight, as you give all the grace that I need to live in this world. It's also a way that David says is because of my enemies. David understands that this path through the wilderness is going to be a hard one. He's going to meet the Amalekites and the Moabites along the way. He's going to face deprivation and want. He's going to long to go back to Egypt where there were cucumbers and meat. We should expect God's leading in righteousness to at times be a struggle, to be strewn with enemies and trials. But to pray this prayer is to ask that God lead you and provide all that you need and trust that he will. To use Christ's own words from the Sermon on the Mount, we seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. This is what it means to live in his kingdom. We seek to be people of truth and love. Instead of having throats that are an open grave, swallowing people whole, our words should be wise and life-giving. Again, notice how much of the psalm is given to the speech of the wicked, their lies. So one of the main ways David is saying that those outside of God's kingdom express their rebellion is through their words. And we we know that to be true, right? We're hurt by people's words. We hurt others with our words. So much of our sin is sin of the word, of the tongue. So that's true of us outside of Christ when we're in our rebellion. Well, what should be true if we're in God's kingdom? How should we express our kingdom citizenship? With our words. Our words should be wise and fitting and seasoned with salt. They should reveal what's in our hearts, our faith and our love for the Lord. Our words should be true. Our words should be words of life. If you can go back and remember, David watched for the Lord there on the threshold of the tabernacle. He, he waited for God's instruction, right? Well, that's a good pattern for us. We, we listen to God And we speak his word to others. We listen to God here together as a a people of God. And then we speak his word to others. You know, we we have this time of silence at the end of our service where we say we're to consider how to stir each other up to love and good works. What I really hope is happening is that we're all meditating on the things that God has said to us. so So that right now as we leave this place, we can encourage each other with what we've heard from God. We can speak these words of life to God that have been wrought in our own hearts. So citizens in this kingdom, wait on God's word, listen to God, and we speak words of truth to others. We, those others include, first, the people in our church, but then everyone else, too. We speak words of truth to the Christians we know at work, and to the unsaved neighbor we have, and to the, the family member who's annoying. We, we speak words of truth to all of them by God's grace. This is how kingdom citizens live. And so if if you know yourself to be a kingdom citizen, you should ask, am I living this way? Do I seek the Lord's leadership with the way that I speak? Do I desire to see my words conformed to God's righteous ways? Am I repenting of the ways my speech still reflects the, the rebellion of the old man within me? To live in God's kingdom is to wait on him 
and to follow his leadership, the leadership of our loving Father and of our good shepherd. That's one way that kingdom citizens live. Another way is that kingdom citizens live by praying persistently. In other words, because access is everything, we should live out the great privilege we have of being admitted to God's throne room and we should come to God all the time. We should keep on calling out to him, my God and my king. We should pray persistently. As I mentioned before, Psalm 5 seems to be part of this series, going back to Psalm 3, that we see a lot of similarities, uh, repeated calling upon God by David, of, of God, and, uh, God, answer me when I pray, help me. And then he often expresses confidence that the Lord does indeed answer him. And these themes go from Psalm 3 to Psalm 6. Again, in all these psalms, David is under intense opposition from his enemies, and he's crying out for help. But if, if we read them as a group, we do notice this, this pattern of night and day praying. So Psalm 3, verse 5, I lay down and slept, I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Psalm 4, verse 8, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. Psalm 5, verse 3, in the, O Lord, in the morning, you hear my voice. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you. Psalm 6, verse 6, I am weary with moaning every night. I flood my bed with my tears. So night and day, David is troubled. And night and day, David calls out to God for help. We should learn from this rhythm. This rhythm, first of all, trains us to expect suffering, and it also trains us to seek the Lord as we suffer, night and day. We may go to bed weeping, we may wake up afraid, but we can sleep in God's peace, and we can rise knowing that our gracious God hears us, he provides for us, and even gives us joy as we suffer. Night and day. That's just everyday life, right? You're living with these burdens that you carry. Are you crying out to God? You know, how often should you pray? Well, maybe a baseline is you, you should cry out to God as frequently as you feel troubled. As often as your fears attack you, cry out to God. As often as you suffer, cry out to God. As often as you're tempted with sin, cry out to God. As often as you have some need of help in serving and loving others, cry out to God. This pattern of David's life helps us to see the foolishness of thinking that suffering is unusual. And that's our intuition in the modern world, is to think that if we're suffering, something is wrong. That there's a medicine to take or a self-help book to buy. And we imagine that if God blesses our lives, then we'll always be happy. We'll have nothing fearful, no negative emotions, no uncertainties to face. When we say it out loud, it's, it's just clearly ridiculous, but we, we tend to think that way. But David's conviction is that he can both enjoy the presence and guidance of God, even as he's attacked by enemies. Even as he's on the run, sleeping out under the stars, night and day, night and day, running for his life, but knowing that God is with him, and God's favor is covering him as a shield. So there, there's no contradiction between knowing the fullness of joy and fellowship with God 
and knowing intense sorrow. David's prayers reveal that he knows both at the same time. Does your vision of the Christian life allow for this? The rhythm of David's prayers, I think, also help us put private worship in the right place in the Christian's life. So what I mean is that we can get private worship wrong. I mean, like your quiet time, your daily devotionals, whatever you want to call it. We can get that wrong when we see it as a kind of prerequisite to God's grace. I get my devotions right, God will favor me today. Rather, we need to commune with God in his word and by prayer every day because every day we face trials. Every day we face trials of temptations to sin. And we all admit that, right? The desires of our hearts are chasing after sinful satisfactions, whether it's through lust or through food or through possessions or ambitions. Every day we have these temptations. So every day we need correction and encouragement from God's word. Every day we need to confess our sin and to rejoice in God's forgiveness. That's why we, we give ourselves to private worship, because every day we face temptations. And every day we face needs, don't we? I mean, sometimes it's just the, the daily need of food and shelter, right? We take those for granted, but they're, they're vital, right? We don't, we, as soon as they're gone, we feel them very keenly. And sometimes we have more one-of-a-kind needs. We, we need healing from a serious illness. We, we need wisdom from a really, for a really hard conversation. We need a new job. We need strength to endure whatever trial we're going through with faith, hope, and love. Now, we don't pray only to get things from God, but God is glorified when we rely on him to meet our needs. We're to know him as the God who abundantly and beautifully clothes the flowers of the field, who, who feeds all the birds of the air. We need to know that he values us more than he values those things. Our Lord taught us to pray, right? And he told us to pray by asking, give us this day our daily bread. So we pray every day because we have needs. And every day we face enemies. They may not always be people, Lord willing. We don't have people attacking us. Sometimes we do. But we do believe that Satan is real and he's a real enemy, a roaring lion seeking to devour us. So we pray for God's help and protection. Just as we prayed last week, Jeff prayed for our college students that the Lord would protect them from Satan's schemes. We pray for grace to be patient with our enemies, to turn the other cheek. We give ourselves to private worship because we have enemies that we face every day. And we notice in David's prayers, he's never praying only for himself. Like this is not an accident that someone was copying David's prayer down, right? He wrote these things down to be used for God's people. And, and even within the prayer, he turns to pray for God's people. So at the very end, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Even if we don't feel ourselves today to be especially tempted or especially needy or especially persecuted, we can be sure that some of our brothers and sisters are. So our private worship is not only for our own sake. We pray for God's people. Through our class about living in the modern world, we, we talked about that today. One of the main ways that we can be the community of God together is to pray for each other. 
So we commit ourselves to private worship for the sake of one another. Night and day, suffering comes. Big suffering, small suffering, things that are our own fault that came from within our own hearts and things that something someone did to us, external things, other kinds of suffering. So night and day, we face those things and we come to God. We pray. We keep coming and keep trusting that God will hear us when we come that he will graciously receive us because of his abundant love that he's poured out on us in Christ. We should come and be confident. Notice how David prays for God to hear him in the verses 1 and 2 and then expresses confidence that God hears him. And he says, you hear me because I pray, for I pray to you. It's almost a, a circular argument, but because I seek you, you hear me. God is willing to do that. This reminds us of Christ who says, whoever comes to me, I will not, I will never cast out. So come, because you've been granted access to God. Life with God in God's kingdom is a daily coming to him and finding him faithful. So this concludes our orientation to the kingdom of God. But this class can't end the way that it would end if it was the Houston Chamber of Commerce putting it on, right? They would say, you know, come this way, you know, enjoy the town, have some fajitas. This class ends with a confrontational question. Is God your king? It ends with a warning. If you don't lay down your pride, if you don't lay down your self-rule, you'll be cast out of God's presence forever. But it also ends with a glorious offer. There is forgiveness and joy, eternal protection for all who take refuge in Christ. For those in Christ, there is the, the promise that ends this, this psalm. The Lord blesses his righteous people. He covers you with favor as with a shield. It's a great call. Lay down your rebellion. Lay down your weapons and take refuge in the Lord, your King. Let's pray. Our Father, what a wonderful God you are. Perfectly righteous and abundant in steadfast love. So much so that you are willing to pardon those who are stained with abundant sins. Thank you that you have made provision for us to enter into your throne room through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray that we who have been granted access would not ever forsake coming to you. Help us, Father, to be persistent in prayer. Lead us, Father, in your righteousness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.